be done your Corazon Esta on Vallecas. Uh, so you are probably best placed to talk about Rio. Can I go Bayacano? Vallecano? Yeah, Vallecano, yeah. That's... Which is kind of like Barnet or Lake Norian. Actually, that's a really bad example. So it's, you've got Real Madrid and then Vallecano, the third team in Madrid. Is there an equivalent in London? Is it Millwall? Um, I'm not entirely sure of my um, English London clubs, but I don't think there's an equivalent really anywhere because, for a couple of reasons, I think because, we're getting kind of deep into this already before we even kind of start, but because of the fact that Spanish society is so polarised, because there was a civil war there, and because Rio, in some ways, began because of that uh, in a working class area, in outside of the city, it's his own little neighbourhood. It was its own little neighbourhood. It kind of got consumed by Madrid, uh, but it's. I think it's it's unique in many ways, and then in the way that the 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 fans are are involved in the club and and things are involved in social issues outside of the club and in their local community and in a the wider community, I think they're kind of unique. So I would find it hard to kind of draw a parallel with any club. In well, the as you never mind. As you've been talking, it, it's made me think of. I used to live in Edinburgh, so you had. I don't know if you've been, but you have the main Edinburgh, you have West Edinburgh, which is heart of Midlothian, and East Edinburgh or Leith, as it used to be, and then Leith got subsumed into Edinburgh. But there is such a great localism because it's an ex-docker area which has now been gentrified to hell. Um, well, it's pretty good, but Hibernian and Leith. That seems like an equivalent to Bayacano. Because I've come to this conversation with you, Robbie Dunn, um, in the football library on the hottest day you can imagine on July the 20th. Um, so it does feel like we're in Madrid, except we have no air conditioning. Uh, but we're here to talk about, well, the team you support um, and uh, Villarreal uh, and Vallecano. Do you support Villarreal or Vallecano? Uh, Rayo Vallecano would be my club, but... Yeah, I think as a football journalist, you get a little bit. Uh, it's, it's not. It's, yeah, I mean they are my club, but I, it's because you get you get a little bit detached from the whole thing. Uh, the kind of deeper you get into football journalism, and, and and the longer you're around it, I think. Is it the case of Gareth Southgate's phrase? I might have it put up in the football library when it gets built. Uh, I love the game. I hate the industry. I don't know about that. I wouldn't. I maybe not. Wouldn't go that far. But yeah, you do kind of see that, and definitely at the at the at the upper end of the of the leagues and the, uh, the bigger clubs, they are run by increasingly cynical people, and by um, and the interests of the clubs tend to be more business orientated, as we saw with the European Super League, and as we see with a lot of the kind of antics around around. Uh, agents, pay, uh, fees, stuff like that. And um, the prices of going to a game, it's increasingly uh, business-orientated. And so it's kind of hard to follow a club in the terms of the, the people who run the club, but as, in terms of match day experience, the kind of people who you uh, identify with, it would definitely be right away, kind of, in that case. But in terms of the club and... Uh, you kind of tend to see it slightly differently as a football journalist because they're not the same thing, you know? Yes, because of the access and because uh, you have to get the quotes and what you write is read 
Uh, and it's brilliant to get a Spanish football journalist. Sid Lowe, I'm afraid I can't afford. So I've got the next best thing. Um, I'm also hoping to talk to Phil Ball, whose book Morbo is all about Spanish football, and the great Colin Miller, whom I guess you've bumped into once or three times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've had a correspondence with, with Colin, and uh, his. I haven't actually read his book yet, but it, uh, from all uh, accounts, it's supposed to be excellent, and it's a really interesting topic, and uh, one that apparently he's done uh, justice to in his book. Yeah. Yeah, this topic is but Betis think... against Sevilla. Mm-hmm. I, I don't. I don't think I'm the next best thing from Sid Lowe, but anyway, we'll leave we'll that debate for another day. <laughs> now um, it's the 20th of July, and the Guardian's main football story is a piece from Senor Lowe, and it's about how Barcelona have to not just balance the books, but kind of tip the books over, put one really shiny one onto the shelf, and give Griezmann away. How has it come to Barcelona, who are more than a club? having to sell the silver to keep the gold? Basically, they become a victim of their own success and also because poor administration and also because of La Liga's, um, La Liga's wage scale and something that was implemented a number of years ago in order to keep clubs from running themselves into the ground because... Uh, so what basically La Liga the, the clubs went to La Liga and said we, we need to do this in order to save our save save ourselves from ourselves so uh, basically you calculate how much you all your revenues all your uh, uh, expenditures and you give La Liga a, a number as to what you think is a fair amount that you should be able to spend on wages La Liga run it through their system they've, they've got a a proprietary software tool where they type in they type in all the numbers and they say yes that's good you go and you can spend 20 million 12 million 100 million 200 million on wages and and um, and on the running of your first team and you go with that and it's an it's a it's a safeguard clubs from from overpaying on wages in the short term to, and, and ruining the clubs as we saw with let's say for example Leeds United we've seen it on numerous occasions past and it's become an increasingly um, ubiquitous problem almost in in modern football. And by the way, can I just um, come in and say Peter Ridsdale was elected onto the EFL board and I think he's involved in Preston as an advisor. So let's hope he's learned his lessons from 20 years ago. But yeah, go ahead with uh, Barcelona. It's both freed clubs from the anxiety of going out of business and from the demands of players, but it's also kind of handcuff them a little bit in terms of, 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 of um, how much they're able to spend. And Barcelona obviously have players who they feel are worth it uh, to pay and have been paying since, uh, have been paying uh, massive wages for the last number of years under Joseph Maria Bartomeu. He's gone now, but those a lot of those contracts remain in place. A lot of those players who, who were signed um on massive wages still remain and now Laporta the new president has to get has to get rid of these players in order to facilitate and also we had the pandemic so basically when we're talking about Villarreal and Rayo Vallecano and clubs like this I mean the good thing about them is that they are not burdened with the weight of expectation when it comes to firstly buying the very best players but Barcelona are and if you're a Barcelona player there's an implication there that you're worth it so when it comes down to can't, um, sign a new contract you are going to demand top 
dollar and then it just gets out of control very very quickly which is what's after happening in Barcelona and they can't control it anymore and they're going to have to sell players which leaves them a sitting duck in the transfer market they're going to lose money on the likes of Griezmann um, uh, and players like that Felipe Coutinho uh, Usman Dembele who's currently injured but uh, players like this who are signed on massive wages for massive prices and they're uh, going to have to be sold at a loss I would imagine it's interesting. Um, and the ones they're keeping, Messi, Busquets, they're the last of the La Masias, aren't they? Because Xabi's gone, Iniesta's uh, gone, uh, Pedro's gone. Kike is there, Jordi Alba wasn't a La Masia. Um, yeah, that's basically it. Busquets, Sergio Roberto is there, but it looks like he's going to be sold. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it then. It's ghastly. Uh, and we go on about Barcelona, who are, the turnover is massive, but there was some statistic about Messi bringing in as much as they spend to keep him because he is on gargantuan wages, kind of LeBron James wages. But what he brings in as corporate and the, I guess there are contracts in place um, means that Barcelona, it's Messi FC at the moment. And I don't know what the succession planning is. But moving off Barcelona, um, who didn't win either the league or the European competition that they were in uh, is the argument that this season uh, more successful than Barcelona obviously Atletico Madrid who won the Liga again uh, but Villarreal who um, won the Europa League yeah yeah definitely um, and there is a case to be made like we've seen the data analytics and um, smart transfer market signings uh, increase in the last number of years a lot of clubs kind of get in their house in order in terms of like what you, you mentioned LeBron James there you just look at the the, the the structures of NBA organization franchises and, and NFL and, and, and things like this. And, and there's more and more teams, it seems like, who are, um, are are kind of bringing in that model with a sporting director, a very, very clear philosophy. And, and, and it, it's no longer left at the... Uh, you're no longer left at the whim of the manager and what he might he wants in the transfer market. You've now got a philosophy. So say, for example, and I understand that... Um, I understand that uh, we haven't really seen... No, we have with, with Sevilla, for example. Yeah, Munchie, who have Munchie yeah, yeah. the sporting director. Probably the most famous sporting director there is. There's a lot of kind of articles out there written about him and his use of analytics and his smart, uh, his, his, uh, smart um, movements in the transfer market and stuff like that. And he's brought in a manager who suits... Who, who, so he picks the manager and then he goes and gets the signings based off their what the manager might want but it's all within a wider philosophy so we've seen the likes of Sevilla being very very successful this year now whether or not they're able to keep up with Real Madrid and Barcelona over a prolonged period of time uh, remains to be seen but you've got the likes of Sevilla you've got the likes of uh, Villarreal now under with Unai Emery and, and, and these clubs are just being well run and with good coaching and Real Madrid and Barcelona are, as you say, it's Messi FC at the moment, and there there is no clear philosophy of of, of football other than buy the best players and put them all together. Obviously, you've got the Barcelona de Cruyff uh, legacy and things like that, but even that isn't enough to keep you going. You have to keep revising that and refreshing it and kind of modernizing it, I guess. And and, and uh, I think that while while I'm not entirely sure that the Alexis to me and Villarreal or Valencia can, can ever catch up with Real Madrid or Barcelona forever. Any one of them 
might be able to in the future, depending on the longer term uh, effects of the coronavirus pandemic and if transfer fees keep spiralling out of control. Yeah, I mean, I think Real Madrid's biggest signing this summer has been Ancelotti again, uh, one of their greatest ever managers. I don't know what the reaction is among the Real fans in Madrid. Um, are they just hoping that they can um, overrule Atletico this season? Atletico will be it. Ten years, they've, they've left the manager in place. It's I once got told off because I worked for a big European organisation to do with football in their news team. And I used the word El Cholo and uh, I was told by my boss, no, 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 that's a derogatory term. I thought, is it? It's a nickname. Surely that's not derogatory. Um, but yeah, King of Madrid, Simeone. Yeah, I, I don't think it's I don't think it's a derogatory term either. I, I don't. He was given that nickname in Argentina. I don't. I don't know what it actually means in Spanish. I don't even know if it does mean anything. But it, 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 I guess it kind of sounds uh, derogatory. Maybe you're, that's what your boss taught. But I yeah, think I it does think mean something. He's been told that it does that. mean something quite awful. But yes, okay, Real Madrid must. Must really, because they've had to spend, spend, spend. Obviously, Atletico did buy Joao Felix for an astonishing amount of money. Um, but typically, it's Real and the Galactico era who spend all the money. But they're trying to deal with, well, they've still got Benzema. Bale is back in Madrid. You must be delighted. Yeah, it's, uh, it's actually funny because I'm, I'm currently on my holiday, so I haven't really put too much thought into this, but just kind of thinking uh, about it. There's a kind of a weird... Um, a weird feeling around Madrid at the moment, and I won't say it's like a depression because, and I'm not in a, in a, in a, in a mental sense, but kind of like a, a lull or a Real Madrid have have taken a little bit of a hiding in recent months in the press. I think they're after getting brought back down to earth in many ways. In that Zinedine Zidane left in a, in a, in a fairly poor manner, I would say he was always held up as a symbol of Madridismo, the, the, the first Galactico. Uh, oh, no, no, I don't think it was the first one. But well, the, it's the, followed the, Figa, the second, yeah. Yeah, 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 that's right, sorry. Uh, so, so, so Zidane was was one of the most successful Galacticos, I'd say, and, and then went on to remain at the club, stayed linked with the club, and embodies this coolness and this calm and this kind of exactly what Real Madrid feel like they are this larger than life kind of a, a persona within the within the football landscape so, so he left and, and, and dropped a bomb by releasing the letter into the newspaper the Arioas saying that she didn't like the way everything was handled there was leaks from the press and, and in the newspaper that Florentino Perez the president of Real Madrid has publicly uh, fought with, went to court against them over, over some, some things uh, in the past, and he released it into the Arioas, that letter. Uh, and then this uh, Sergio Ramos left, and there was a big row over, over that, and it was kind of, oh, well, it was confusing. It made them look kind of a little bit small, I would say, in terms of the way that the contract negotiations were handled. Ramos said he was offered a two-year deal. He went back to the table, and then apparently he was taken off the table. It was only a one-year deal. All very kind of childish, mm-hmm. childish and, and kind of small time. Then um, uh, they brought in Ancelotti very much under the radar, and, and now Florentino Perez, there's been uh, all sorts of audio leaks coming out of the press that, that, that we don't know where they came from, we don't know kind of what, what, what that's going to mean going uh, uh, heading into the future. And, and uh, sorry, and even prior to that, the European Super League, 
left them with little, it kind of left them with a little bit of egg on their face. A little, it's it the ten omelets. It's terrible. Yeah, he won't recover. Yeah, yeah, that's all going on now in the summer, and it's almost like, oh, sorry. And then you got the Spanish national team who didn't have a single Real Madrid player in it. It was almost kind of like a feeling that oh, they're going to fail, and then we're going to get to rub their faces in it. And they didn't fail. They very much went out and did themselves proud. And all of a sudden, Real Madrid are left wondering, maybe, no, no, they're not, and they'll be fine. And they're, they're having a little bit of an existential crisis, a little bit of a wobble, but they'll be fine as an institution. And the fans uh, have plenty of history to kind of build their egos back up again. But at the moment, they're sitting here going, and they've got a, they're, they're homeless at the moment in terms of their new stadium is getting built. So they don't know whether they're going to be, they're going to be playing their home games and stuff like that. And it's all kind of left them with a feeling of kind of, what, what what does the future hold for Real Madrid, you know? It's one of the first times since I moved to Spain that I've noticed this, and it's kind of like, a, it's a little bit of a weird feeling. It's almost unsettling in that Real Madrid are maybe doubting themselves at the moment, maybe. Is there a comparison with Manchester United in 2013, trying to bring in a lot of players? I'm just looking at the squad here. David Alaba has come in. Um, there's no... Number 15 is now taken by Balberde, uh, interestingly. I don't know if he's a new signing, if he's just been reassigned. But look at these players. Asensio, Marcello, Modric, Cross, Benzema, uh, the fading Hazard. Um, At this point, we don't know if Varane's going to go to Man United. It looks like that's a done deal, yeah. Yeah, it would appear so. Um, And yet they seem to be bringing in all these Brazilians. Who's the Brazilian coming in next season? Didn't they sign a guy and he's... Uh, are you thinking of Rainier? Yes. Yeah, he went to Borussia Dortmund, I believe, on loan. But he there hasn't really been much about him. But that has been the that has been the policy in recent years, and it's been quite smart actually. In, in that they they realised they couldn't keep up with PSG and Manchester City, and this is a lot of what this is a lot of of what Florentino Perez is talking about when he's saying we can't compete, we can't keep up because his transfer policy always has been by the biggest and the best players, the biggest personalities and the best players. And all of a sudden, they can't anymore. Uh, PSG, Man City uh, have been buying them. And, and and Florentino Perez has had to kind of readjust, so they've kind of switched their, their focus to buying younger players. Now, they're still paying a massive premium. Like They paid a lot of money for Vinicius coming out of Brazil, an untested teenager at the time. And they paid like... Uh, 50 or 60 million for him or something outrageous. I'm a Watford fan and uh, Richarlison came in, we made 30 million pound off him. Joao Pedro has come in, we'll make 20, 25 million pound off him. And yet Watford's big signings this summer have been players of premiership quality. So it's all very good buying in from Brazil. But maybe they're better off Mm. buying in from Baracano. Yeah, yeah, but I'm not entirely sure that... uh, I don't know. I I mean, I don't really know what their uh, scouting systems are like or whether their use of data analysis, because I've mentioned data analysis a couple of times, but I feel like that's kind of like the future of of scouting and of finding players that traditional methods don't tend to find. And um, and, and kind of there's something, uh, I guess, like sexy about Brazilian... um, talent and the Brazilian style so like maybe like I don't know any player the Real Madrid are going to have to buy is going to have to be there's going to be a premium on him like you look at Luka Jovic and I'm not entirely sure that so, so this is what I'm saying about having a sporting director who who knows what they're doing at Real Madrid they're buying for 
past performance, which is obviously what you're always going to do. But how well, how well does past perform? A, how well does past performance in 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 a different league uh, transfer over to future performance in La Liga? Firstly. And secondly, uh, like for example, Luka Jovic's uh, excellent season with Eintracht Frankfurt, which I had, I how... I saw that because I was covering for that European organisation. Rebic, Jovic, Haller. I thought those three are brilliant. You take Haller out of that team, flop at West Ham. Rebic, I think, went back to Benfica possibly, and Jovic has been well. A lot of things have gone wrong with Jovic. Stupid signing. In terms of price, like he was sixty million, like sixty million euros, doesn't seem like a lot of money in 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 the pre-pandemic world. But it's still an awful lot of money for a player who. I mean, and it wasn't even that he didn't have an impact. He was he was uh, lost at Real Madrid. Lost. Never ever looked like settled like he had settled. Never looked like he was part of the team. Even when he was on the field, he looked like he had no understanding of what was expected of him. You know, and these things can happen. Fair enough. But I mean, I just wonder what uh, Real Madrid go from here in, a, in, a, in an increasingly data-driven world and in a much smarter world as well. When you've got a, a president in Florentino Perez who's calling the shots, no sporting director, and who and and, and, and this isn't uh, going at Real Madrid because Atletico Madrid and, and well, Atletico Madrid have Andrea Berta was supposedly excellent, but uh, Barcelona as well. I mean, there, there was rumours that Barcelona had the Barcelona Innovation Hub and they've got some of the best data scientists in the world, but they weren't being leaned on and they weren't being used. It was just kind of whoever's cool at the moment will buy. Like Felipe Coutinho, for example, they went after him in January, couldn't get him. Klopp was at Liverpool, like, we're not selling. Coutinho demanded it and the price kept going up. There was a report in the New York Times, Rory Smith wrote it, about uh, Borussia Dortmund, another very smart club in terms of uh, buying young players and selling big and, and buying the right young players. And they walked into the meeting, Borussia Dortmund and Barcelona walked into that meeting. Borussia Dortmund knew that Barcelona had a, uh, had a, had a uh, ball of money burning a hole in their pocket. Barcelona had, had, um, had, val- uh, uh, had a valuation on Usman Dembele of I think it was like 80 million or, or 70 million. They said, we're not spending any more than that. Borussia Dortmund walked into that meeting saying, we're not selling for any less than 135 million or 100. And they walked out and Borussia Dortmund were after selling Osman Dembele to Barcelona for 135 million. You're just looking going, okay, that doesn't sound like a lot because we've become accustomed to these millions and 30 million being thrown in out of nothing. But that's, who's, who's negotiating these like that's I mean, if you had a business, a business in Silicon Valley or business negotiating in that manner, you you, you wouldn't be in a job for very long. And and, and you know, with regard I, to managing contracts, Luis Suarez going to Atletico Madrid. What a stupid thing for Barcelona to do! It cost them a league. And and and, and when they were drawing up a list of names that he couldn't, and then Luis Suarez, remember, was incredible for Barcelona and this was where the the, every, the whole problem started he wasn't respected in terms of or he felt like he had been disrespected as such a such a an excellent player in the history of Barcelona was kind of basically told you're not wanted anymore not really treated with the respect he felt like he deserved they, and he wrote up they said you you can go uh, for free but here's a list of player, a list of teams you can't go to, and they had they had let Atletico Madrid off the hook, or sorry, they had let uh, left Atletico Madrid off the list. 
And Luis Suarez, a man driven by spite, and I say that in the nicest way possible, yeah. he's a man driven by the hatred of others. He loves being the villain. He loves uh, a story where he gets to be the pantomime villain. He looked at the list, or he had decided, and he said, I want to go to Atletico Madrid. And Barcelona came back and said, no, no, wait, no, sorry. Oh, yeah, no, Atletico Madrid too. We want to add them to the list. And he said, no, 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 but that wasn't a part of the deal. And all of a sudden, like, we have this idea, and I'm, I'm like, in Barack Obama's uh, biography, I read an excerpt of it, and he's basically saying, like, as you go climb the ladder and climb the ranks, um, uh, and he obviously got to the most powerful, biggest position in the world, and he said, you assume once you get there, you're going to be surrounded by geniuses and some of the best. He said, no. He, he got into that position. He realized these people make the exact same mistakes as, uh, as, as they're humans. And you, we look at Barcelona and Real Madrid and the biggest clubs in the world and the most well-dressed executives on the biggest wages, and we think they've got some genius. Now, obviously, they're highly competent people in many ways. But you look at that and you look at what's going on at Barcelona and you assume, no, 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 there must be more to the story. And the more that comes out, you realise there is no more to the story. It's just really poor administration of a football club. And some of the stuff that went on with Bartomeu, you're looking going, you, you couldn't write it because it wouldn't be believable in a Hollywood script. Yeah, it is, um, it's a soap and, opera, uh, it's a telenovela. I don't know what the equivalent in Spain yeah. is. I really enjoy seeing teams like Villarreal and, and um, Sevilla and, 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 and maybe Hitafe or clubs like that who getting the most out of what they have. And um, obviously the stakes aren't as high for them in many ways because there's a little bit of more room for fluctuation in the in their standings and in their uh, performance because of Barcelona to win everything, win and there is no time for... Um, time for an off-season, there is no time for uh, rebuilding years, it's win now, win at all costs, and you tend to kind of lose lose a sense of um, yourself when it, when it, when the stakes are that high, I think, and for, for the smaller clubs around Spain, they're kind of maybe seeing, in a post-pandemic world, an opportunity here to buy smart, deal with the pandemic, uh, the, the wage cuts and things like that, in a smart, responsible way, and maybe give themselves a competitive advantage and by not being as big as the bigger clubs they, they immediately have a, com- a, a, a competitive advantage in that respect when it comes to money and, and losses and, and things like that because they're not as reliant on future earnings so mm. they can kind of sit back and maybe take stock here a little bit that's true. athletic club de Bilbao it's, it's so important for Barcelona and Real to keep succeeding and then to get with the Super League which I want to talk about as little as possible but the reaction in Madrid yeah, especially yeah, yeah. for Vallecano fans I've argued for a long time, just let them do what they want. Let them fly to the moon and play in the Bezos League. Let them kick about in Abu Dhabi or Malaysia. If that's what they want to do, fine. But I want to go and see Wealdstone or Bohemians or whomever you see in Ireland. Um, what was the reaction among Vallecano fans to the Super League? Yeah, well, it was kind of... Um, there was nobody really focusing on Rayo in, in many ways when that came out. But it was pretty much... Um, I mean, Rayo fans would be completely against that and... The, the people who support uh, Rayo and the people who are Spanish at the end of the day. So you, so you grow up almost thinking Real Madrid are, and Barcelona are already apart from us. They're, they're, they're in their own, stra- in their own uh, universe already. So this is just an official way of, of making clear something that we all already know. 
Do you get me? So in many ways, and this is why the reaction wasn't as strong from Spain and from Real Madrid fans, because I spoke to uh, many Real Madrid fans who are from Madrid and who grew up supporting the club, and they're saying, brilliant, great business. Keep growing, keep going. You have to keep fighting with the best. You have to keep going. If you want to sign the best player, this is the way that they think. They're not thinking about ruining the game. They're thinking about how Real Madrid can beat Barcelona and how Real Madrid can keep buying the best players. And how do we go to the Bernabeu every weekend and see the best players? They're not thinking about anything other than that. Whereas people from Rio and people from Villarreal or from Valladolid and Paragosa, whatever you want to say, are, are more in tune with grassroots and, and, and understanding that a club is more than just Champions League finals and that a club offers more to the community than just presentations with Galacticos. Do you know what I mean? And uh, I think that, that the Super League was just a confirmation of something that Spanish people already grew up thinking. So it wasn't, it wasn't massive news here. It mm. was just confirmation for us. That's why the, the response in England was so strong because in England, even, even like, and I'm not saying that there isn't Real Madrid fans that are like this, but you go to Old Trafford and you see, like, Manchester is um, United are still very much, uh, and I know that this, in many ways, they're not because they've outgrown this status, but they're still very much a community club, and there's people who, whereas in, whereas in Madrid, you could literally write a book about this, but in Madrid, they're almost seen as something aspirational rather than being something that gives back to the community if you get what it yeah, and it's kind of like there's a built in hierarchy in terms of I'm just sorry I'm just thinking this through here myself so that's right it's the library and uh, there's actually there's yeah, a lounge yeah. where you can sit and think named after the Accrington Stanley owner Andy Holt so that's where you can put the world to right so this is good thinking out loud is, is especially yeah, brilliant yeah, yeah. But but and, and this is something that I'm only kind of learning. I've only been in Madrid for five six years now, and I I wouldn't wouldn't have had any experience knowledge or experience with, with Spanish people and how they view the world and that. And I mean, you can't just put them all into just one genre or category. There's obviously like in any country, there's different people. And, but 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 in terms of just the way that society is kind of, and this is what I was saying earlier about Rio being kind of unique in that it, it's very clear. I just actually finished talking with the library. I just finished Giles Tremlett's book on the on the international brigades from the Civil War, and basically, in the in, in since the Crusades, he he says we have never seen a, such an explicit fight between fascists and anti-fascists. The fascists, under Franco's command, were, were t- took control, uh, staged a coup against Spain won against the anti-fascists. That was the opening flashes of the Second World War. And what we saw in Spain was a very localised um, fight between between people who were fascists and people who stood against fascism. And, 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 and throughout history, and even now, it's gotten watered down and muddied and it's kind of what's left and what's right. This was fascist versus anti-fascist and that and I, when I moved to Spain I noticed that you could see everything was you knew what newspapers were left and you knew what newspapers were right you went to family dinners and you knew which 
family members are right wing, you knew which family members are left wing, you didn't talk about politics, there were certain things you didn't speak about. It was very delineated. It was it was weird for me. I grew up in Ireland where Yes. We, <laughs> yeah, we don't need we, to explain. We've got, it, yeah. we've, got a, we've got our own history, but we didn't even, but we didn't talk about we didn't we didn't talk about it, and maybe because we were all a certain way, that, that it, you didn't have to explain what, which way you stood or where you were. But we, we didn't. I didn't know what left and right were growing up. I just, I didn't know. And even now, there's no, you don't really know who's, what's what in in in, in the pub, in people's public life. Whereas in Spain, it's very much, oh yeah, I, I support this. Or no, they might come out and just tell you that, but it's very easy to kind of parse their words and you can see very clearly which friends of yours or, or people you know are lean which way and I think it's just very open and and, uh, and then they're not open but it's very uh, obvious you can see it in in, um, in in Spanish society and everyday life and that's something that I kind of try to get across in the book mm-hmm. from someone from outside moving into Spain and kind of seeing it all with new eyes. The book is Working Class Heroes Madrid's Forgotten Team available for nine ninety nine, published in 2017 on pitch, which we'll continue talking about in the second half. Uh, John Nicholson has just offered you a piña colada, so if you want to take that, then you may. Uh, but just in about a minute or so, which is a stupidly short amount of time, Christopher Beerman wrote this great book about, is it football hackers? It's the future of football. It's all yeah. in data and analysis. And there is yeah. it PPL? PPLP? It's, it's basically carrying the ball or also the packing um, taking out packing, loads of yeah. players. So when you watch football, say when you watch Spain play Italy in the semi-finals, for which commiserations to Spain on losing to the eventual winners, yeah. did you watch it as a data scientist or as an emotionally involved person who lives in Spain? A little bit of both, to be honest with you. I'm a very emotional person, so I can't, I can't really separate that. But yeah, like I, I, watch, I would never look at a game as a data scientist in terms of numbers. Now, maybe if someone took a shot... I might say, I wonder what the XG will be on that or something. But but um, I would watch the game and uh, more so as what are they trying to do, and 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 then when it's over, look at maybe the data to try and maybe better better uh, understand what happened there or to confirm go against what I had seen. And um, so yeah, I mean, I would I was always watch, and this is kind of I guess part of the. the debate at the moment going on and wish the data and the eye test and things like that and I think that they they're not mutually exclusive and I think um, anyone that's uh, I, I don't want to say anyone that's anyway smart but anyone that can kind of can hold more than one opinion in their brain at, at the same time knows that these two things aren't mutually exclusive they both kind of bounce off each other and I would never look at a game like some robot it's always there's always some kind of an emotional attachment unless it's some t- two teams that I genuinely don't really uh, know much about. But even when I watch Premier League games, I'd always I know we used to go to Liverpool when I was younger and we went to Anfield with my family on numerous occasions and there'd always be a little bit of a sweet spot there or a soft spot there for Liverpool, for example. And you'd always watch it with emotion. So yeah, it's um, it's an interesting one, but I think that yeah, it's hard for me to detach from watching the game emotionally and kind of getting caught up in what's happening. And the, and I actually watched it with with the family member, uh, my 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 partner's family, so it was very emotional in in in, in terms of the nerves. And uh, yeah, it was yeah. Uh, it was huge, yeah. And it's interesting looking at 
um, the post facto, less the racism, which was so obviously going to happen. But it was clear Italy were the better side. I think if Chiesa had stayed on, Italy would have won in normal time. England were very lucky to get to penalties. And then, of course, Donnarumma has secured this massive move to Paris where hopefully he'll live happily ever after and represent the Qatari people the best he can. Uh, But as we turn into the second half, um, I wanted to separate the um, Bayacano um, material to the second half. So we've talked about Spain and we've mentioned Sid Lowe. Haven't mentioned Graham Hunter, who is uh, the sage on both Barcelona and Spain itself. Have you been in a press box with L. Graham? Yeah, yeah, a couple of times I've met Graham and, uh, yeah, like the, the godfather himself. And, I mean, I mean, I'm only new to this whole thing. So, I mean, it's kind of it's kind of weird for me that somebody would want to talk to me in a podcast, firstly. And secondly, that uh, in, in many ways I know nothing. But at the same time, I, I have lived for five years in Spain and worked as a journalist. So I do know a couple of things. But, yeah, you look at the likes of Sid Law and Graham Hunter who've been doing it for a couple of uh, couple of decades now and who are, are amazing at what they do and who have um who walked me through a lot of my early maybe not memories but my early yeah my earliest memories with La Liga definitely and uh, and now yeah you do get to share a press box with them and you, you might meet them or you might say hello to them or have a coffee before a game or something like that and um, yeah I think and, and these guys are, are veterans of, of the of the of La Liga and know so much that uh it's uh, it's quite humbling to, to kind of be in a press box with them, yeah, for sure. Yeah, well, hopefully you don't get, what's that, imposter syndrome. I bet they get imposter syndrome sometimes. Everyone you worship has their own idol. 